Well, good morning, Austin Stone. Uh, my name is Steve Timmis, and I'm from England, uh, which is in and, uh, a particular city called Sheffield, which is in the north of England, about two and a half, three hours north of London. Uh, and it's a privilege and a joy to be with you uh, and to have this uh, opportunity to open God's word uh, with you. So let's do that. Let's jump straight into that. If you'd open your Bibles or um, open the app, whatever it is, to the book, The Prophecy of Habakkuk, uh, which is uh, towards the end of the Old Testament, uh, the eighth of the 12 minor prophets. Um, And you've already noticed by how I'm speaking that I'm not from these parts by this accent of mine. Uh, And by particularly, by the way, I say the word Habakkuk, uh, because I think you say Habakkuk. Now that's okay, that's okay, that shouldn't come between us. Uh, I say, you say tomato, I say tomato. You say banana, I say banana. Um, I say it right, you say it wrong, that's okay. Um, But it's just important to get that out because I'm going to keep saying Habakkuk. Uh, I'll try to say Habakkuk just to be culturally sensitive, but I'll forget. So I don't want that to be a stumbling block for you and to keep you from hearing what I'm saying. So let's open, and we're just going to look particularly into chapter 2, but I want to uh, just read a few verses from chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, and then we'll switch to chapter 2, verses 12 to 14. So let's hear God's word together. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear, or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise, so the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth, for the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted." And then chapter 2, verse 12. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now that's my text for this morning. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And the brief that was given to me for my visit to you as a church was to uh, help raise your eyes from what's going on around you here to what is going on around the world. And that was quite an easy task. That was a low bar for me to clear because I know you as a church and your reputation for having a global vision, your, your investment in the nations around. So my task is merely to come and affirm you in that, to encourage you in that, to help you sustain in that. But I hope, my hope is that I'll be able to do that in a way that may be uh, slightly unexpected and in a way that will, by God's grace, drive it home very personally to each of our hearts. I did think about bringing you a number of stories from around the world. Uh, the privilege of being doing the job that I do is that I get to hear many of them. And you as a church, I know that is true for you too. But not one of those stories can compare to the greatest story ever told. And that's why we're going to dive straight into this uh, small book tucked away in the Old Testament to see how significant is God's global vision. 
And I hope you realize how I understood how I phrase that, God's global vision. Because our global vision, as important as it is, is secondary, it's derived. It only comes because God has a global vision. Our heart for the nations is only legitimate because God's heart is for the nations. And that's that's what I want to see, just how significant God's heart for the nations is. How significant his vision for the world is. Now Habakkuk is a short but very powerful prophecy. And the prophet Habakkuk is is very bold in how he speaks, if not actually impudent. Habakkuk had come to the Lord with a complaint. Things were rotten in the land of Judah a long time before they were rotten in the state of Denmark. Now that's a a reference to Shakespeare. Uh, Some of you may be familiar with that, but some of you may not be. Now Shakespeare was that great English bard, and so it seemed appropriate to to quote him on this visit to uh, Austin in Texas. Um, And I realize that, well, well, I hope that you will indulge my piece of high culture. And... um, and I'm going to be, try to be slightly more culturally relevant by referencing uh, George Michael and MC Hammer elsewhere in the talk. Um, and I know, just let me say again before I kind of really get into this, that's George, Ham- uh, George Hammer, George Michael and MC Hammer, that's the nearly 60-something trying to be trendy, just so you, you I, I appreciate that they're not really kind of cutting edge, uh, but that's okay. So let me give you a context. Habakkuk was a prophet. That means he was a man who was appointed by God to be God's spokesman. God's spokesman to his people. And his people were given a a task, a privilege, a calling to be a nation who would be a light to the other nations. That as God ruled over them, as God blessed them, as as God was their, their king and savior, God would through them show the world what a good and a great and a wise king he was. But his people had wandered away from that calling. They had stopped enjoying that privilege. And so men like Habakkuk were raised up to speak to God's people and to call them back to God. And as Habakkuk looked at the people of God, he was appalled at what he saw. He saw uh, injustice and violence and destruction and strife and conflict. We saw that uh, in that reading in, at the beginning of chapter 2, didn't we? And it became too much for him. And he did what any righteous man or woman of God should do in a condition of perplexity. That is, he goes straight to God. And he cries out in desperation, How long, O Lord? How long are you going to let this go on? I can see it. I know you can, but you do nothing about it. How long are you going to look idly on? It really is quite extraordinary. But if he had problems when he came to the Lord, his problems only got got worse. Because God answered him, but the man of God really didn't like what God said. Because the Lord said, Habakkuk, I know what's going on. I really do. And I want you to know that I'm going to do something about it. And I want you to tell my people that I'm going to do something about it. What am I going to do? I'm going to raise up a godless, wicked, cruel nation as my instruments against my people. Isn't that extraordinary? 
You can understand why Habakkuk was so appalled at that. As we look around the world at us, what do we see? We see nations in turmoil, don't we? We, we, we hear of the, the exploits and the terror of, uh, of, of ISIS as they try and move in on countries, as they spread their terror around the world. And it's like being told that God was raising up ISIS in order to punish his people, to judge, to purify, to refine his people. But that's exactly what he was doing with Babylon. And Habakkuk was horrified, wasn't he? he? He was appalled at the prospect and he even rebukes the Lord. Look at chapter one and verse 13. He says, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You can't be serious, God, he says. Are you really gonna do this? Are you going to bring the Babylonians down upon your people? I know we're wicked, Lord, but they're way more wicked. We're more righteous than they are. They deserve your judgment, not us, God. And by the end of uh, chapter two and into the beginning of chapter, uh, by the end of chapter one, into the beginning of chapter two, we find Habakkuk standing in a rather smug, self-assured position. You can imagine him, can't you? Standing there with his arms crossed and his eyebrow raised, saying, okay, Lord, Let's see you get out of that one. I've really laid it out for you, really. I've really got you trapped in, in in a corner there. Well, the Lord responds in a very direct way and with something of a sting in the tail. And it's not only a sting in the tail for Habakkuk. It's not only a sting in the tail for the people of Judah. It's a sting in the tail for us too. So let's see what it is. We're going to look at chapter 2 under two headings of disproportionate length. The first one is, you've got to have faith. That's the George Michael reference in case you missed it. (laughs) Verses 2 to 4, you've got to have faith. Now the first thing to notice is that the Lord is quite unfazed, isn't he, by the prophet's protest. It's as though he says, okay Habakkuk, you've had your say, now Get on and do your job. What is that job? Your job is to tell the people what I'm telling you. Your job is to warn the people about what I'm warning you. Your job is to tell them what's coming so that my people might respond in repentance and faith. Maybe not as a people, but individuals within them so that they might run from their wickedness and find their refuge in me. You see, in a society like Judah, where, where the law was paralyzed, that's, what he, that's how he describes it in chapter 1 and verse 4, it was Habakkuk's job to remind them of who they were as God's people, a nation under God's control, because his law was a, mean by, was a means by which he, he, he governed them, by which he, he ruled over them. So despite Habakkuk's incomprehension and despite Habakkuk's outrage at God, what God was planning to do his task was to still tell the people God is in control God is on the throne and yet you've chosen to ignore him you've chosen to rebel against him and because of that the sword of judgment will fall because of that the Babylonians will sweep into the promised land maybe it won't happen today maybe it won't happen tomorrow but it will come 
Look at chapter 1 and verse 2. Chapter 2 and verse 1. Uh, verse 2, sorry. Write the vision, make it plain. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. It will come in God's good time. And at God's sovereign bid- bidding. And that's an important lesson for Habakkuk. And it's no less an important lesson for us. See, God, the God of Israel, was no geographically challenged tribal deity as though he was confined to the promised land and he couldn't step over the border. He shows himself to be the God of the whole world, doesn't he? I'm going to raise up a people so that they might be the executors of my justice. That's what I'm going to do. That's how sovereign I am. I want you to know that I'm the God of the whole earth. Kingdoms rise, kingdoms fall, and they rise and fall at my bidding, says this sovereign God. The Babylonians may labor under delusions of their own sovereignty. They may think they're a law to themselves, but it is God, the master craftsman, who is shaping history according to his own designs, according to his own purposes. And God is fulfilling his purposes through all the decisions that they make. Yes, of course, they engage in butchery and barbarism. Yes, of course, they're they're, they're a terrifying nation, a war machine on the roll, but God is in control and using them for his own purposes. And that's problematic for the prophet. And that's problematic for us, isn't it? I mean, let's be honest, it is problematic. Even as I'm saying it, it causes us to wince a little. I once accused my wife of being a control freak. I learned never to do that again. But she made a good point in that moment of um, conflict after that accusation. She said, you know your problem with me being a control freak, Steve? Well, actually, she said Stephen. That's how I knew it was a, a, a difficult moment. She said, you know your problem with me being a control freak, Stephen? It's because that means that you can't be a control freak. Because you're a control freak too, you know. And I was outraged. Me? Of course I'm not. But she's right. And that's our problem with control freaks, isn't it? That control freaks are difficult because they, they interrupt our control freakiness. And, and that's the thing about the sovereignty of God. It's a problem for us as human beings for the simple reason that we like to think of ourselves as, as, as sovereign. And because it interrupts our sovereignty. Because it interrupts our plans for our life. And that's what we don't like. And we're going to come back to that. In fact, that's the key point of what I want us to to look at. But have a look at chapter 1 and verse 4. Sorry, I keep getting these chapters mixed up. Chapter 2 and verse verse 4. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by faith. Now, there's one thing I want you to know. This is a very difficult verse to translate. It is an even more difficult verse to interpret. And you should also know something about the English art of understatement. This is a bit of a cultural lesson for you. Imagine a game somebody you know is playing and they come off the field and they look at you and they're wanting to uh, know how do you think they did. And uh, if if you're English, you'd say to them, hey, that was okay. And by okay, you would say, that was great. Okay means great. 
if you're English, because it's the English art of understatement. You might say as they come off the field, yeah, that was a fine performance. Whereas if you're you, you say, that was awesome, man. <laughs> if they're English, if you're English, they'd come off and you say, yeah, that wasn't too bad. By which you would mean, that was the most impressive display that has ever been seen on planet Earth. <laughs> so once you kind of get that, cultural uh, translation going, then when I say that it's not an easy verse to translate, then you'll know that it's very difficult. In fact, at the bottom of my Bible, in a footnote, it says the meaning of the Hebrew of these two lines is uncertain. That's the translators of this telling you we haven't got a clue what it's meant to be. We're Hebrew scholars and we don't know what it's meant to be, but hey, here's our best shot at it. So it's a difficult verse, but thankfully... The Apostle Paul used it in Romans chapter 1. Flip over your Bibles, that's where we'll go. Romans chapter 1. Because we find Paul quoting it there in chapter 1 and verse 17. For in it, that is in the gospel, the good news of God, of all that God has done for us in Christ, of all that God has for us in Christ. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So let's let Paul translate it and interpret it for us, then we'll know what it means back in Hebrew. That seems to me to be a good approach. So what is Paul doing in Romans 1? We're not going to spend a lot of time here. We don't have time. But we do know that he's showing us that the gospel of his son, of God's son, the gospel is centered on his son, and it is all about chapter 1, verse 5 of Romans, his name among the nations. That's why Paul wants to go to Rome in verse 13. That's why Paul talks about his obligation to the Gentiles, all the other nations of the world, chapter 1 and verse 14. He's not ashamed of the gospel, chapter 116, because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, regardless of whether they're Jew, regardless of whether they're Gentiles. And it's all about God's passion to bless the nations. God's passion to reach the world. God's global vision. That's what it's about. That's what the whole epistle of Romans is about. That's where it begins. That's where it's end. That's what everything in between is about. That's why it's about faith from beginning to end and everything in between. So it's not about your heritage. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or you're a Gentile. It's about faith in the finished work of Christ. It's not about the Mosaic law. It's not about uh, being a special people and relying upon your, your, your heritage or your ancestry, your genealogy, your DNA. It's not about that at all. It's about trusting in the one who has kept all of his promises through his son. It's about faith. That's why you've got to have faith from beginning to end, relying wholly, wholly, only, and always on God. Now that helps us, if you flip back all the way back to Habakkuk, that helps us to understand chapter 2 and verse 14. Because how are God's people going to, 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 to respond and, and survive and live when the Babylonians hit town? Well, simply by trusting in God. Simply by relying wholly and only and always upon him. As a God who makes promises and a God who keeps them. So let's have a look briefly at these Babylonians who are going to come uh, roaring into town. Verses 5 to 19. The second heading, you can't touch this. That's MC Hammer. <laughs> now it appears... 
that God, at first reading, that God is trying to kind of sweeten that bitter pill that Habakkuk has had to swallow. And by telling him, Habakkuk, don't worry, the Babylonians are going to get their just reward. But don't forget the sting in the tail. We'll see that in a moment. And the Babylonians come into full view from verse 4 onwards. And uh, the pronouns he refers to the king of Babylon who embodies all that is evil among the Babylonian hordes. He is the one who is accountable to God. Now God may be using him to judge and purify, refine his rebellious people, but they themselves, the Babylonians, are going to be subject to judgment because you just don't get to mess with God's people. You just don't get to touch the Lord's anointed. The Babylonian war machine is rolling on only for the glory of Babylon. And for that, God will not let them go unpunished. And this section, 5 to 19, contains five woes that God speaks against Babylon and five specific, for five specific sins. These were the motives that lay behind the cruelty of this superpower, the things that drove them on. And as God exposes their sin, he predicts a, an appropriate and an altogether fitting payback. Now, we don't have time to unpack them, but we would do well to reflect on the appropriateness of all five of these in terms of our own Western culture, because they are remarkably apposite. So why did the Babylonians do what they wanted to do? Why did they, they, they take over nations? Why did they crush people and destroy people, butcher people? Why? Five reasons. First of all, verses 6 to 8, wealth. That was why. There's nothing particularly sophisticated about it. It's just pure, unadulterated greed. The Babylonians have gone on the rampage simply so they can fill their coffers with the wealth of the nation. They wanted to take it back home. But look at verse 7. The worm will turn, Babylon. Will not your debtors suddenly arise? You may think you're top dog, but it ain't going to last long. They did it for security. In a dog-eat-dog world, the Babylonians were never going to be vegetarians. And so they plotted and they schemed in their own homes. But look at verse 11. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. That is, their own houses will haunt them. They thought they could be secure, build a wall around them to keep whatever nation out. But even their own houses will haunt them. Fame, verses 12 to 13, they wanted to make a name for themselves. They wanted to build a kingdom that would last forever. They wanted to make Babylon great again. Sounds familiar? Well, but why? And for what? Well, look at verse 13. For nothing. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts? People's labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing. And then the superiority, verses 15 to 17. A basic lust for, for increasing their own sense of significance by, by, by destroying, demeaning, downtreading others. They would only be satisfied to be top dog when others kind of cowed at their approach. But instead of glory will come shame, verse 16. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. You'll be exposed in your nakedness. And then finally, control, verses 18 to 20. The Babylonians had their own panoply of gods 
imaginary gods who, who were mere projections of their own desires. So they had gods of war who demanded human sacrifice only so that they, that would justify by their own bloodlust. And they were accountable to no one. Or so they thought. Look at verse 20. But the Lord is in his holy temple. So let all the earth keep silence before him. Now it's a fact of history that this fierce and fearsome nation would last a mere two generations. Nothing, is it? And it would be the Lord who brought them down. How did he bring them down? Because he raised up another nation, the Persians, under another king, Cyrus. And you can almost hear a sigh of relief from the prophet, can't you? Well, at least they're going to get their comeuppance. But remember that sting in the tail that I've mentioned a couple of times? The expose of the Babylonians tells a sordid story of violence and of wickedness, of greed and, and of destruction. But remember how the book started in chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, that verse that we began with? Habakkuk would have been saying, yes, Lord, preach it against these Babylonians. But he was also at the same time exposing the people of God. The very thing that you want them to be judged for, Habakkuk, that is the very thing that you're complaining about of my people. Judah had forgotten the God who had saved them and they had turned to idols and they had become characterized therefore by evil and by iniquity. And God's judgment upon Babylon when it came was just and righteous and that's why God's judgment upon his people was also just and righteous because judgment begins with the household of God. Now look, I get it. All this sounds pretty depressing. And you may be sitting there thinking that you already knew that the English were a pretty unemotional race. But hey, this makes the Canadians seem like party animals by comparison, doesn't it? But there's a reason, really. I'm not just trying to just kind of make you miserable. There is a reason. You see, it's vital that we understand just how significant the nations are to the Lord. It's, it's vital that we understand just how significant God's global vision really is. And the reason why we're doing this, the reason why we're dwelling on this is, well, it's life itself, isn't it? The kind of lives that we live, the kind of lives that we experience. Because if you've lived any length of time, you will know this already. And if you're too young to have lived life, you will find it out at some point in the future. If I may kind of misapply Winston Churchill, life is a conundrum inside an enigma wrapped inside a puzzle. It just is. Things happen that we don't understand why they happen. We don't know why it happens. We don't know why it happens globally. We don't know why it happens personally. And it may not be on the same scale as it would be for Judah when the Babylonians came into town. But when it happens, it feels just as perplexing, doesn't it? When a child dies, or when illness strikes, or when redundancy threatens, or bankruptcy hits, or relational breakdown occurs between parents and children, or there's a marriage, or there's a betrayal in a marriage. When these kind of things happen, we don't understand what is happening. We have no clue what's going on. What are we to make of it? 
Why would you do this to us, Lord? And we stand pretty much where Habakkuk stands, with our arms crossed and our eyebrow raised, saying, okay, Lord, come on, convince me. Convince me that you're in control. Convince me that you know what you're talking about, that you know what you're doing, because pretty much from where I'm standing, you don't seem to have a clue. Now, of course, we never articulate that, but in our hearts, that's what we're saying. What on earth are you up to? Well, the answer is found for us there in our text. Chapter 2 and verse 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. See, why does that occur there in the middle of this kind of expose of the Babylonians? Well, it was meant to reassure and recenter God's people. This was Habakkuk going to preach to the people. And right in the midst of this, this darkness, this mire, this evil, we have this beautiful shaft of light. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. You see, the Babylonians overreach themselves, but it is the Lord who will be known. His kingdom that will extend. His glory that will permeate everything and everywhere. There will come a time when the earth will fulfill its original mandate to be a stage upon which the glory of God will be displayed in all of his unveiled majesty. When the Lord will keep his covenant promises, when the Lord will bless the nations, when he will embrace the whole world, and even when trouble comes, even when Avalon smothers, even when that tidal wave of suffering engulfs, they have God's promise to hope in and live by. So when you see the Babylonians coming, says the Lord to his people, when you see that illness strike, when you see that heartache hit, when you see uh, bankruptcy being threatened, when you feel that, that sharp blade of betrayal, then, then trust in me. Hope in my promises. It won't stop the hordes coming, but this is where you will find strength and hope. And this truth, you see, speaks to us on an intimate, personal level as well as the global vision. This book, and this is why it's such a problematic book, proclaims God's sovereignty in bold and unapologetic tone. Because life does throw up many questions, doesn't it? It does cause us many problems. I'm 60 years old in four years' time. That's like six decades of life. And I've known my share of heartache. I know what it is to weep myself to sleep on my pillow, even as a grown man. I know what it is. And I've come to the conclusion that I do not know why God does what God does in the way that he does it. I never do. I know that his character is a good character, but I don't know. I don't know anything about his ways because his ways are past finding out. They're not my ways. His thoughts are not my thoughts. That's what I know. But we live in the here and now. Life doesn't provide answers to our problems, to our suffering, to our pain. And sometimes neither does God. We do know that, don't we? And we can't hold God to ransom as though he is somehow bound to, to, to explain himself for us. To us. Because we do not know why God does what God does in the way that he does it. But we do know this. We know that he's good. 
We know that he's good when the cancer strikes. We know that he's good when the bankruptcy hits. We know that he's good when redundancy threatens. We know that he's good when betrayal occurs. We know that he's good when breakdowns in families happen. We know that. <clears throat> and he calls us to trust him. Just as he called his people to trust him. And how do we know that? Because of Calvary. That's why. You see, Habakkuk, what did he have? Well, he had the whole of the uh, history of the people of Israel. This was like the 8th century. So he had the whole of the people of Israel to look back on, to say that he could trust God, that the people should trust God. He knew that God kept his promises because he'd seen God act, but he didn't know Calvary. And we do. And although we don't know why God does what God does in the way that God does it, we do know that he's good. Why? Because Calvary tells us. Because Calvary was an act of betrayal. Because Calvary was an act of injustice. Because Calvary was an act of, of cowardice and callous cruelty and torture. Because cow, cause Calvary was a travesty of justice. We know that and yet in it and through it, God was fulfilling his purposes. And God was showing him to be a God who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. See, Romans 8 tells us, doesn't it, that the Lord works out all things together for our good. But our understanding of good needs defining. The good is not the good of intervention, always. The good is not the good of healing, always. The good is not the good of another job, always. The good is not the good of somebody being stopped at the door as he comes in to take repossession of our home. It isn't. The good is conformity to Christ. The good is not an outcome that solves my problem or undoes, or, or undoes my tragedy, no matter how devastating it may feel to me in the moment. The good is conformity to Christ. And what did, uh, what, what, what did he hope in when his enemies were closing in on him? What did, he, what did he cling to when he was faced with his worst nightmare? Well, the writers of the Hebrews tells us it was the joy that was set before him. And what was that joy? That the knowledge of the glory of the Lord would fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. That the fruit that was, going to be <clears throat> that was going to be produced by his blood, sweat, and tears as they spilled onto the ground would be the fruit of nations believing, the knowledge of God extending, a multitude too great to number from every nation, tribe, people, and language before his throne. And that is the mark of God's elect, God's people. That we view our lives through the lens of God's sovereignty, not God's sovereignty through the lens of our lives. We cannot interpret God. You see, and that is so culturally confronting for us because our world that we live in tells us that you are the most important person that has ever lived. You are the center of the universe and it's you that really must be fulfilled. It's you that's worth it. Well, whatever emotion is, is playing in the moment, you've got to indulge it. Whatever ambition you have in the moment, you've got to, you've got to realize it, that it's all about you. That's what your word tells you. But God's word doesn't. God's word says, no, it's not about you. 
And that's a good word. That's good news. That's the best word that we could possibly ever hear. Because to be told it's about you is slavery. It is bondage. It is crippling and crushing and destroying. But to be told that no, it's all about God and his glory. That's freeing. That's liberating then we know that our lives have purpose. We know that we have meaning. But it's not about me, it's about him. It's about that time when the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. I don't know why God does what God does in the way that he does it, I know, but I do know this, that somehow, in some way, that only he knows, and one day I will see that my suffering, my tragedy, my pain, my heartache will contribute to the knowledge of the glory of the Lord filling the earth as the waters cover the sea. You see, I am not what this world is about. He is. And my life is dispensable. My comfort is dispensable. My momentary happiness is dispensable so that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. The last book of the Bible, Revelation, ends with these words, doesn't it? Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And it goes on to talk about him wiping away every every tear. And that is what our future is. In our suffering, God will wipe away every tear. He will scoop us up in his arm. He will place us on his knee. He will tell us that he loves us and we will know that and our hearts will be consumed for him. But that is not what this is all about. Because even that is a means to this end. Why will there be no sea? Because the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. That's what God's about. That's why you should be a church that, is a, that has a global vision because it, it, it resonates with God's global vision. And God is serious about that, so we must be serious about it too. Why can we say that in all of our joys, Jesus is better, in all of our sufferings, Christ is enough? Because we're a means to that end of the knowledge of the Lord filling the earth of the glory of the Lord filling the earth like the waters cover the sea. And there is no better future to anticipate. And when the knowledge of his glory fills the earth because it fills our hearts, then we will know fully, even as we are fully known. Then we will be at rest. Then we will sit back, relax, and say this is the Lord's doing and it is glorious in our eyes. So be at peace, people. Let me pray. Heavenly Father. Oh, Father, this is a majestic vision and one that we know all too easily we're deflected from, distracted from by other things, other um, puny visions. And Father, forgive us for that, please. But Lord, please let us in your goodness and your, your mercy, let our uh, eyes be lifted to that horizon, to that day when the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. So that we may interpret our lives now through that glorious lens. So that we might know what we're about now through that glorious purpose. Oh Lord, do that in us. Break the the tyranny, the chains of of our egocentricity, of our self-centeredness. Lord, please, and free us so that we know that it's not about us, but about you. For your praise, your glory, the honor of your son. Amen.